episode in our series on Lee Harvey Oswald and the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963. This episode is going to focus on the facts that show that there was no conspiracy in the assassination of John F. Kennedy, that Oswald shot the president, and that he acted alone. Now, this is the oldest conclusion in the series of investigations over the years of the assassination. But just because it's the oldest doesn't make it wrong. In fact, it has been verified over the years by subsequent investigations over and over again, and there has never been any smoking gun or hard evidence or even compelling evidence to the contrary. And what's really interesting about the conspiracy theories in the assassination of Kennedy is that these are kind of like pre-mediations of what we see so often today, which is the betrayal of the truth in service of power, greed, or some other goal. But what we see today is a post-truth world in which the truth is fungible, even when it is available to all and available as never before because of the tremendous wealth of information at our fingertips. It may well be that the extreme plenitude of information is one of the problems in understanding the truth. Yes, we have access to the facts, but we have access to so many voices, so many competing voices, each claiming to know the the one truth, that the actual facts get lost in the shuffle. And when everybody has a voice, that includes a lot of shysters and mountebanks and people who just can't be trusted. And so one of the reasons this is such a lively and relevant subject is because there's so much misinformation today. I'm speaking, in case anyone has any doubt, about the lies in the MAGA movement of Donald Trump. This has taken over the Republican Party, and Trump, again, has a chance to be elected president, as he was in 2016. This is a national scandal, because so much evidence has poured out that this man is not to be trusted. He is a threat to the Democratic Republic. And yet, there are so many streams of misinformation that try to portray him as some kind of patriot that has the best interests of the working class, the middle class, the blue-collar workers, and on and on, when exactly the reverse is true. Trump has no concern for American democracy, or the well-being of people he looks down upon. But there are outlets in the media that have their own reasons for protecting and defending and promoting the lies of Donald Trump and the MAGA movement. And so it isn't that Trump is the main problem here. If it was just Trump, it would not be a problem because people wouldn't support him. The evidence is so abundant that he lies almost as often as he breathes that it is just astonishing that people have checked their brains at the news app, whatever app they're looking at, or at the cable TV station or the streaming station they're watching, 
and that people simply tune out the truth, or they tune out the masses of information within which the truth is embedded because it is submerged beneath a mass of misinformation, and people don't know what to believe. Whatever. It's very difficult to understand the reasons for the popularity of lies and the failure to sift the truth from the lies and be able to distinguish the one from the other. At any rate, it seems to me that we've had a lot of experience with this sort of thing in the chronicling of the Kennedy assassination over the years. The vast majority of books that are written about the Kennedy assassination are written by shysters and mountebanks, as I said before. People who want to make a quick buck or think they can make a quick buck by presenting theories of the assassination as a conspiracy which don't hold up to any scrutiny at all. Most historians shy away from the assassination for two reasons. First of all, they believe that the Warren Commission and the subsequent investigations pretty much got the facts straight. And so there's no profit to be made. And when I say profit, I'm not talking about money, but I'm talking about no profit in the search for truth to be made by historians to reinvestigate the assassination because the facts have been known for almost 60 years. The other reason for not wanting to investigate the assassination is because the assassination as a topic has been besmirched by all these thousands of conspiracy theory books, and no historian can possibly write about the assassination without people immediately assuming that the historian believes in conspiracy theories themselves. So historians become discredited simply by writing about the assassination from a scholarly standpoint. But of course, the assassination is important from a number of different angles. What it is not important as is the story of what really happened and who did it. We've known that for 60 years. But it could be examined as a case study in hysteria and irrational thinking, the paranoid style in American history, as Richard Hofstetter called it. In other words, why have there been so many conspiracy theories when there's so little evidence to back it up? Now, that is an important question for historians to examine. But historians don't examine that question because they don't want to be confused by the public as a conspiracy theorist. And there are so many other topics that they can pick that don't have as much possibility of misinterpretation or misunderstanding. But also, they don't look at it because they don't see that there are these angles in which the assassination might be of interest. So what I'm doing in this series of podcasts is trying to shine the light on aspects of the assassination which really separate fact from fiction and make it clear that the assassination is no mystery at all. It's a cut-and-dried crime story that hasn't been a mystery for 60 years but that people have tried to make into a mystery. Now, in today's episode, we want to look at the basic facts that show that Lee Harvey Oswald not only shot the president, but that he had to have shot the president all by himself. 
Although all of these facts have been known for nearly 60 years, these are the facts that get buried or actually subtracted from the story in order to make it seem mysterious. The conspiracy theorists do not tell you what I'm about to tell you. So they simply airbrush these facts out of the story because they can't explain them. And this is one of the tactics of the MAGA movement. Talk about everything except the facts that betray the idiocy of their points of view. Well, let's take a look in the case of the Kennedy assassination. One of the things the conspiracy theorists do not tell you is that Oswald tried to assassinate someone else five months before he assassinated JFK. Now, that's pretty incriminating against Oswald. And so they simply don't tell you. Well, that's a tactic that propagandists always engage in, but it makes it no less reprehensible and no less necessary to call them out. The man that Oswald tried to assassinate in April 1963 was a retired general named Edwin Walker, who was a hero of the far right. Oswald purchased a pistol and a rifle. He purchased a pistol first in January, but he ordered it by mail, and he still hadn't gotten it by early March. But from January of 1963 on, he had his sights on Walker, and Walker left on a speaking tour in February 1963. Walker lived in Dallas, like Oswald did, and that made it convenient for Oswald to target Walker because Walker was one of the few arch conservatives that were within Oswald's grasp, so to speak. He lived in Dallas, just like Oswald did. So Oswald began researching where Walker lived and how he could get there. And he began making plans to engage in reconnaissance of Walker's house, take pictures of his home and the backyard, and so on. And Oswald probably would have taken a shot at, at Walker if he had gotten his pistol in time, and if Walker had not left on a speaking tour around the third week of February. As I said, Oswald did not get his pistol until mid-March, when Walker was still on his speaking tour. Sometime between January and March, Oswald began to understand that a pistol was not going to serve him very well as a means of killing Walker. He decided he needed a high-powered rifle. So he sent another money order off to purchase a high-powered rifle. He purchased it in the name of Alec Heidel, which was a pseudonym that Oswald liked to use. The rifle and the pistol arrived within a couple of days of each other in mid-March 1963. This was about the time when Walker was returning from his speaking tour. And no sooner did Walker arrive back than Oswald was making plans to head over to Walker's house and shoot Walker, if he possibly could. On April 10th, Oswald set his plan in motion. He took a bus to Walker's home, and he proceeded to fire a shot into Walker's house when Walker was doing his taxes. Oswald could see Walker at his desk, and a window showed Walker at the desk. 
Oswald was leaning against a fence about 100 feet from Walker's window. And the only reason Oswald failed to kill Walker when he took the shot was because he did not see that there was a sash in the middle of the window. And when Oswald fired the shot, the shot was deflected by this sash and it missed Walker's head by a few millimeters, actually passing through Walker's hair and hitting the back of the room. Walker immediately jumped up and went to get a pistol of his own and then left the house looking for whoever fired the shot. By this time, Oswald was long gone. He didn't even wait to see if he had hit Walker. But he rushed away, and following his plan, he buried his rifle and proceeded to catch a bus back to his home in Oak Cliff. Marina was at home, and she didn't know what was going on. She just knew that Oswald was gone for a long time, and she was frantic because there was no reason for him to be gone so many hours. She actually went into his personal office, a place she was not supposed to ever enter, and she noticed a note that Oswald had left her. In the note, Oswald told her that if he was captured by the police or killed, these were the things she should do. She should go to the Red Cross. She should try to get help from the friends she had made. Oswald did not say I have shot General Walker in the note, but he did make it clear that he was up to something that might cost him his life or his personal freedom. And this made Marina even more frantic. A half hour or an hour later, Oswald rushed into the house and he was completely beside himself with fear. He was frantic, he couldn't stop talking, and he incriminated himself and he admitted that he had fired a shot at Walker. And he said that the reason he did that was because Walker was as bad as Hitler. And Marina tried to tell him that what he had done was a horrible thing. Oswald said, I don't know if I've hit him or not, but I think that I did kill him. This really terrified Marina because she thought that the police would burst into her home at any minute and probably Oswald thought so too. Oswald quickly took to his bed and tried to sleep it off, and he demanded that Marina leave him alone. But he had fully confessed to trying to shoot Walker. According to Oswald, many lives could have been saved if someone had killed Hitler, and he believed that Walker was an American fascist, just as Hitler was a German fascist. The next day, Oswald was relieved, of course, that the police had not trailed him, but he read in the newspaper that Walker had not been killed, that the bullet had missed, and he told Marina that he didn't understand how he could possibly have missed, but that something must have happened. So once again, he confessed to Marina that he had done this. Now, many people ask the question, what was wrong with Marina? Why didn't she go to the police? But this is quite unfair when you consider the situation Marina was in. Marina was in this new country. She had been in the United States less than a year at this point. She had a child who was barely a year old, and she was completely dependent on Oswald for her basic livelihood. She hoped to get help from friends, but she couldn't count on it. 
She didn't want to go back to the Soviet Union, and she didn't know what would happen to her if Oswald was arrested. Maybe she would be jailed too. Maybe she would be deported to some god-awful place. So Marina was completely vulnerable, and she extracted from Oswald a promise that he would never try to do that again, and as leverage to keep Oswald to that promise, she told him that she was going to keep the note in order to force him not to try to do this again, and that if he ever tried again, she would go to the police. And Oswald actually let her keep the note, and it was found after the assassination of JFK. And by discovering it, the FBI basically forced Marina to admit that Oswald had done the deed, that Oswald had taken a shot at Walker, or at least Oswald had said that in the very evening in which it took place, before it was in the newspapers. So the conspiracy writers don't tell you this. Isn't this a little bit important in terms of explaining the motivation of Oswald to kill JFK? He had already tried to assassinate one American political figure, one who was within his range of action. Why would he stop at someone like Edwin Walker if he had a chance to target the President of the United States? Now, there are many other reasons why we think Oswald killed President Kennedy, but that one is pretty darn important. And it's also true that many other aspects of Oswald's life are also ignored because conspiracy writers have no explanation for them. It's very hard to make a case for conspiracy when you have a person like Oswald who had many reasons for wanting to shoot high-powered political figures and who had the means to do it in a time when presidential security was so lacking. It was a scandal how insecure the president was in those days. And we had a telegenic president who liked to appear in open-car motorcades with minimum security around him because that was the mystique that JFK cultivated for political purposes. No president had so many motorcades, open-car motorcades, as JFK, and they were going to keep coming and keep coming until something horrible happened. The JFK assassination, as one writer put it, was a tragedy waiting to happen. There were no less than three motorcades within a week before the assassination that JFK was a part of. So one factor that the conspiracy writers also don't tell you is how lax presidential security was and how easy a thing a presidential assassination was able to be committed by someone with the skills and the luck and the opportunity that Oswald had. So what we're talking about is someone who had the motive, the ability, and the opportunity to assassinate JFK. Some of these were the result of happenstance. Some of these were the result of luck. But if we drill down and understand Oswald and his way of thinking at any given moment in the months between mid-1962 when he came back to the United States and the assassination in November 1963 we see a change in his way of thinking. 
When he first came back to the United States, he really wanted to be a change agent, but there were two paths to becoming a change agent. He preferred the path of recognized intellectual, somebody whom the Americans would be impressed with, with his knowledge of international communism gained from life in the Soviet Union. That's why he thought he could publish his memoirs and his historic diary and live on the profits. And that's what he first tried to do. His plan B was to go to Cuba and be recognized as the same kind of intellectual by a revolutionary movement like, a, like Fidel Castro's. And then Castro would pay Oswald's bills and shower him with flattery and attention if the Americans would not do so. So those were Oswald's plans. The problem was that he lost those opportunities in the months following his return to the United States. Now, the first idea, that of being a recognized intellectual by the American people, fell by the wayside earliest when it was obvious that nobody was impressed with his manuscript. Oswald would have to go work as a manual laborer. Some have pointed out that he always dressed very nicely when he went off to his manual labor jobs. And when he came home, he switched to his more formal wear as quickly as possible because he didn't want to think of himself as a manual laborer. He wanted to think of himself as an intellectual. So working as a manual laborer, whatever that job happened to be, was tough for Oswald. It was like he couldn't escape the humiliation that he felt. And sometimes he would share this with his fellow workers, but more often he would just live in his own world and say nothing to them as if he was distancing himself from them by not paying attention to them. He would sometimes interfere with their work as if they weren't there, walking over them, walking into them, and things such as that. Further humiliating Oswald was the fact that the emigres who invited he and Marina to parties really were only concerned with Marina and not him. So he felt that the world had turned upside down, here was this brilliant intellectual, as he saw himself to be, who just happened to marry a woman from Russia who appealed to him on some level, and she was the star attraction to these emigres, and not just to them, but to other people who met the Oswalds, such as Paul Gregory. Oswald couldn't stand it. He was the one who should be the object of attention. After all, he was an American who went to the Soviet Union. He was the one who thought of major geopolitical issues. He was the one who had figured everything out as far as what the problems of the world were. And this was this young woman who just wanted to be a material girl, such as America produced in abundance. And yet she was the star attraction. So this, this really grated on Oswald. And meanwhile, he was working in these menial jobs. And so he quickly gave up the idea of trying to become a success by being a paid intellectual within the United States. And the one man he really admired among the emigres was George de Morenschild, who was a, an eccentric gadfly like Oswald himself, and who was the only one who paid Oswald any attention and showed him any respect. 
Oswald gravitated to DeMorenschild like a magnet. And DeMorenschild had all kinds of crazy ideas, but he seemed to regard Oswald with respect. In reality, DeMorenschild thought that Oswald was a semi-educated hillbilly, as he told the Warren Commission later. But he didn't show that side of him to Oswald. And so Oswald was impressed because DeMorenschild was a worldly man who had had success in his life. He was practically a father to Oswald in terms of age. And the two got on very well. But DeMorenschild was also very careless in his political talk. And he would say things like, Edwin Walker is an American fascist, and whoever bumped him off would be doing the world a favor. That sort of thing. And Oswald listened to that, and he gradually came to believe that he could top de Morenschild by acting where de Morenschild was merely talking, and that he would be the one that would bump Walker off, especially since Walker was well within reach. But this marked a conversion or a transition of Oswald from Oswald the legal citizen who would try to make it in the capitalist way by selling a book to Oswald the change agent through violence. And it was a stark change indeed. Paul Gregory who only saw Oswald during this first phase, the phase of would-be capitalist, never dreamed that Oswald would shoot the president of the United States. Paul Gregory never knew Oswald the assassin. He only knew Oswald the aspiring intellectual and book writer who would make money on his intellect. However, What Gregory did notice about Oswald was that he had, as Gregory put it, delusions of grandeur. It was very obvious to the 21-year-old Gregory that Oswald thought that he knew more than most people and that he would one day show everyone that he was a man destined for greatness. It was in stark contrast to the poverty in which Oswald actually lived his life. And it really struck Gregory as a remarkable feature of Oswald's personality. But Gregory did not see any violence in Oswald because Gregory last saw Oswald at any length of time in September 1962, and Oswald had not totally given up his dreams of making money the old-fashioned way through book publishing, or perhaps making money, money or at least material success by going to Cuba and becoming Fidel Castro's right-hand man. But the transition with the emigres and the meetings with George de Morenschild and the idea of somehow using Edwin Walker as the fulcrum that would transfer Oswald from the change agent of an intellectual to the change agent of an assassin, was taking place in late 1962. In January 1963, Oswald sent a money order for a pistol. His idea at that time, which was quite impractical, was that he would use a pistol to assassinate Edwin Walker. He does not seem to have thought of 
purchasing a high-powered rifle at this time. Perhaps he thought that the rifle would be too expensive, but in any case, in January of 63, he sent off a money order signed by his pseudonym, Alec Heidel, to purchase a pistol, and it would take several weeks at least for the pistol to arrive. And meanwhile, of course, Walker announced that he was going on a speaking tour with Billy Hargis, which was called the Midnight Ride, a reference to Paul Revere's Midnight Ride in colonial times to warn the American people of the threat of communism, the threat from the Kennedy administration, and the threat from world communism all rolled into one. Well, Oswald was frustrated by this because he had to wait for his pistol before he could do anything, and he had to wait for Walker to return before he could do anything at that point. And during this time, Marina reports that Oswald was particularly vicious in his beatings of her. She said that February 1963 was the worst month of her life because he was so violent with his temper and so malicious in treating her with fists and abuse, you name it. Oswald also began to pressure Marina to write to the Soviet embassy asking for a visa so that she could return to the Soviet Union alone. And when Marina said, well, I'll go back to the Soviet Union if you want me to, but I'm only going back if I have a divorce. He said, no, no, no. I don't want you to get a divorce. I want to meet up with you sometime, but I just don't want you to stay here. Well, obviously, the reason Oswald said that was because he wanted to get Marina and June out of the way when he was arrested or killed by the police for killing Walker. He couldn't tell her that, but he wanted her to go back to Russia, not because he wanted to divorce her, but because he felt that it would be in their best interest to be out of the United States and back in Russia once he was in jail or dead. In either case, he couldn't support them. So this was the tangled emotions or reasoning that Oswald had. And it kind of makes sense if you think about what was really on his, on his mind. But to Marina, it made no sense at all, of course, because if a husband wants his wife to go halfway around the world, it would appear that he would want to divorce her at the same time. So uh, that probably created numerous arguments between the two. And in Oswald's frustrated state of mind, his lack of self-control, his lack of ability to manage these conflicting emotions, he lashed out physically, in a physically abusive way, perhaps showing the physical abuse he must have experienced himself as a child. Now, one source of Oswald's motivation to change from literary success to political assassin is the fact that Edwin Walker loomed up as a potential target, and he was failing at his first effort. But the other source for moving in this direction was what he was learning about John F. Kennedy and his Cold War policies. Now, this brings up the question of why Oswald would take a shot at a 
fascist or arguably a fascist like Edwin Walker and also take a shot at a liberal politician like JFK who was nothing like Walker. Many people have been puzzled by this disparity and they've thought that, well, Oswald might have been against Walker. That kind of makes sense given his left-leaning proclivities. But why would Oswald shoot JFK who was a political figure on the left like Oswald? Well, the answer is the Cold War. And this is another subject that many, even many historians, but especially conspiracy writers, do not talk about. They act like Lee Harvey Oswald had to be innocent of the assassination because he had no beef with John F. Kennedy. That simply won't hold up. Once you look into Oswald's mind and once you understand what was going on in the Cold War between 1962 and 1963, Oswald, of course, was in America when the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred. In that crisis, there was a clear and present danger that the world would blow up in a nuclear holocaust because of the conflict between Kennedy and Khrushchev in the Soviet Union. Oswald didn't have a lot to say about the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was vaguely critical of Kennedy, but he didn't have a lot of interest in talking to others about what his view was, except to say that he believed that Kennedy was reckless and almost caused World War III. But the most important thing for Oswald was the fate of Fidel Castro. He was reading in The Militant, and The Worker, his two most radical publications that he got in the mail. He was reading much that was critical of Khrushchev and much that was defensive about Castro. And we can be sure that Oswald was concerned with helping Castro, not with the Soviet Union, but with helping Castro because that was his plan B. That was his way out of his dilemma. If he could not get out of his dilemma, through political assassination, he would have to go to Cuba and be hailed as a revolutionary intellectual by the Castro regime. So maintaining Castro's livelihood was very important to Oswald, and he would have regarded himself as a very important figure in helping Castro to survive. So Kennedy's constant war of words, and who knows what other kind of war Kennedy was contemplating against Castro. This inflamed Oswald's feelings. He constantly was hearing in the pages of the militant and the worker that the Kennedy administration was conspiring against Castro. And in fact, the militant published page after page after page of Castro's speeches in which Castro harangued the Kennedy administration for plotting to assassinate him. It's often forgotten that Fidel Castro gave speeches that lasted for hours, and the militant dutifully published every single word of these speeches. And in every speech, there was always a passage where Castro would allude to secret plots against him by the Kennedy administration. Some of these plots involved landing saboteurs on the island that would blow up installations. Some of these plots, according to Castro, 
involved saboteurs trying to make their way to Havana, where they could assassinate Castro. But Castro was always clear that the Kennedy administration, having failed to remove Castro in the, in the Bay of Pigs, was now turning to CIA assassination plots. And so Castro was telling the communist world this. The militant was publishing it. Oswald could easily read about it. And Oswald believed it and thought that his own future was under threat as well as Castro's life. And so what we have here is a weird situation where, yes, the Kennedy administration, the two Kennedys, Robert and John, were plotting under Operation Mongoose, a secret CIA operation, to assassinate Fidel Castro through fair means or foul, so to speak, through secret weapons, secret cigars that might explode, secret drugs, you name it. And, of course, these efforts were secret to the American press. They were secret to the Congress. They were secret to the wider public opinion, but they were not secret to Lee Harvey Oswald because Oswald was hearing what Castro was saying. Anybody could have, but most people didn't listen to what Castro was saying, whereas Oswald did. And in Oswald's mind, assassination was fair game. If the Kennedy administration was at war with Castro then those who were on Castro's side had to be at war with the Kennedy administration. And if the Kennedy administration practiced assassination efforts against Castro, then Castro's forces had every right to use assassination as a weapon against JFK. That seemed to be a basic principle of all's fair in war, according to Oswald's point of view. Now, the reason he targeted Walker was because Walker was anti-Castro and Walker was within reach of Oswald. But Oswald would recalculate a potential attack on Kennedy if Kennedy ever got in reach of Oswald. That seemed highly improbable in 1963 when Oswald had his hands full doing manual labor and didn't even own a car, and John F. Kennedy did not show up in Dallas very often, and even if he did, it would be only for a few hours, and not likely in a place where Oswald would be within reach of JFK. The evidence that Oswald had motive to assassinate JFK becomes more compelling when we look at his time in New Orleans from April 1963 to October 1963. Oswald went to New Orleans in order to escape the heat in Dallas in April when the police were looking for him in connection with the Walker shooting on April 10th. Marina convinced him to go to New Orleans to get away from Dallas. But once in New Orleans, Oswald spent most of his time, other than working in menial labor once again, trying to develop a resume that would impress Fidel Castro. That's what New Orleans represented to Oswald during the time that he was there. He spent his entire free time there trying to develop a resume that would impress Castro 
and facilitate his move to Cuba, which he intended to take at the very end of September and the very beginning of October in 1963. While he was in New Orleans, Oswald was considering hijacking a plane to Cuba, and he even tried to enlist Marina with little June in tow as part of his plan. Marina mocked him and said it was ridiculous that she would stand in the back of a plane with a gun holding June and trying to keep the passengers calm while Oswald hijacked the plane to Cuba. So that plan didn't come off. However, more realistically, Oswald passed out handbills for the Fair Play for Cuba committee, which he would have placed into his list of things to impress Castro with. And he also participated in a radio interview in which he defended his communist views and explained why he thought that regimes in Africa, Asia, and Latin America were right to resist capitalistic exploitation. Oswald put in a pretty good performance in his radio interview in New Orleans, in which he debated Carlos Bringer, the anti-Cuban refugee whom Oswald clashed with in New Orleans and got arrested for in August 1963. But Oswald was shown up at the interview because the interviewer had discovered that Oswald had lived in the Soviet Union for two years. And when Oswald was confronted with this information, Oswald had nothing to say and felt that he had been humiliated in the process. Oswald's performance wasn't as bad as he thought it was, but because he was not expecting to be shown up for his presence in the Soviet Union, he did stutter and stammer a bit and felt that on the whole he had had a miserable exercise in debating Bringer. Besides these activities, Oswald checked out a lot of books from the New Orleans Library, including one, The Huey Long Murder Case, which showed that Oswald was still thinking about the role of political assassin even while he was developing this resume to present to Castro. Just in case that path didn't work out, he was still contemplating political assassination. Are these the acts of someone who was innocent in the JFK assassination? I would say no. So when Ruth Payne drove down to New Orleans to fetch Marina, Oswald and Marina told Ruth the story that Oswald would go to Houston looking for a job while Ruth would take Marina back to Dallas. In reality, of course, both Marina and Oswald knew that he was going to go to Cuba, seeking a visa to Cuba to somehow lay the groundwork for a better life in Cuba, wherein he would then summon Marina somehow to join him in Cuba in the better life that he had prepared for with his so-called resume. Of course, when Oswald finally made it to Mexico City and tried to get a visa from the Cuban embassy there, the Cuban embassy told him that they would only give him a visa to transit on to the Soviet Union if the Soviet embassy gave him a visa to the Soviet Union. 
Oswald protested, but he did go to the Soviet embassy while he was in Mexico City, requesting a visa to the Soviet Union, which was just a ploy to allow him to get to Cuba. He had no intention of using such a visa to get to the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union, for its part, had no intention of giving Oswald a visa to go to the Soviet Union. So Oswald was essentially stalemated in Mexico City. He couldn't get a visa to Cuba because the Soviet Union would not give him a visa to Russia. And there the matter stood. Oswald had his pistol with him, and he presented his pistol to the Cuban authorities in desperation to show how serious he was in wanting to get to Cuba. But that didn't impress the Cuban officials, and they basically told him to hit the road and leave at once. Oswald left the Cuban embassy in despair. The CIA, of course, had been monitoring both the Cuban and Soviet embassies, and they knew that Oswald had been trying to go to Cuba, and they reported that duly to the Washington, D.C. authorities. Oswald's visa to Mexico was about to run out, and so he had no choice but to leave Mexico and return to Dallas, where Marina was visiting. When Oswald reached Dallas, he had no money left. He expected Ruth to come down to the bus station to pick him up, but Marina told Oswald no way he would do that, and so Oswald had to hitchhike his way to Ruth Payne's house in Irving and somehow pick up the pieces of his crumbling life. We talked about what Oswald did next in our last episode on Oswald's journey, and in our next episode, we will talk about Oswald's movements immediately following the assassination and how that further nails Oswald as the one and only assassin of JFK. Please join me then for that third and final episode of the stories that you won't hear in conspiracy books because conspiracy authors have no answer to them. The stories that compellingly show once and for all that Lee Harvey Oswald was a sufficient cause for the assassination of John F. Kennedy and that no one helped him along the way. Until then, this is your host, Rick Ryman. Happy listening.